A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. We've experienced this in our relationships. Uh, There are plenty of times when people we care about fall short on the promises they make to us. Or maybe it's with people we aren't that close to. It could be a boss who promises a promotion and it never comes. It could be a politician who promises change and it doesn't come. Even when we or others make promises with the best of intentions, people go back on their word. Or they prove that they simply don't have the power to follow through on their word. If you've paid attention to the news this week, you saw an example of promises failing. The Democratic Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea, was formed in 1948. Since then, the communist state has been one of the strangest and most enigmatic countries in the world. Its regime is a one-man dictatorship that runs through successive generations. These dictators have brutally oppressed their people, and they demand total loyalty and devotion. So much like the ancient emperors, these leaders are are venerated like gods. And really, the the more you research North Korea, the, the more your heart breaks for the people of North Korea. While the leadership of North Korea hasn't exactly shown itself to be stable or reasonable, and considering its history and current practices, we can understand why it might not be a good idea that they would have nuclear weapons. Uh, Whether or not it's a good idea for any country to have nuclear weapons uh, is a topic for another day. Um, Knowing its history and its tendencies and relentless pursuit of these weapons, well, North Korea's actions over the last few months have seemed really out of character. They had a joint Olympic team with South Korea in the Winter Olympics. Kim Jong-un, their leader, and Moon Jae-in, the leader of South Korea, met in the demilitarized zone. And the most recent news has been a promised summit between Kim Jong-un and our president, President Trump. A meeting that was going to be unprecedented in United States and North Korea history. This seems to be promised for change. But the summit promised for June 12th in Singapore is now off. Who's to blame for not keeping this promise? Perhaps it's a little of both sides. North Korea hasn't done exactly what they promised to do, but maybe we were too quick to believe their promises. Whoever's idea it was to make a commemorative coin of this summit on June 12th maybe should have waited till after the summit. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, this is the eighth sermon in the book of Genesis. And so far in the month of May, we've been dealing with the life of Abraham. Uh, Perhaps the concept of believing promises is relevant to Abraham's life, unlike any other character in the Bible. While Abraham was living in a foreign land, around people who did not worship the one true God, God called him. And Abraham followed God, and God promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessing. What's more is that God promised that through Abraham's offspring, he was going to bless 
all the nations of the earth. So somehow, him and his descendants would be central in God's plan to restore his people to himself. This is a big promise. And Abraham believed God. And God confirmed this promise by making a covenant with Abraham. And God continued to confirm his promise over and over again. So in light of his promise to Abraham, God calls Abraham to believe him and obey him. It seems reasonable, right, to trust God? I mean, who's more trustworthy than God? He is almighty. He is always good. He does not lie. This isn't just anybody. This is God. Well, as reasonable as this seems, we are often unreasonable people. In fact, lacking faith isn't often an intellectual problem. It's often an effectual problem, like what we love the most. Well, trusting God and his promises, obeying God, these things are easier said than done. And Abraham's life proves this. So he grows in his faith in trusting God and his promises. But at times, his faith founders as he lives in a world full of rebellion against God. And as he and his wife just keep on waiting. You know, they're supposed to have this great nation, but they don't even have one son. And they aren't getting any younger. So as we bring Abraham's life to a close, we see that his whole life was to be a life of faith. A life of loving trust and dependence. But you can't just say you have to have faith. Because that's still kind of vague. What do you have to have faith in? Who do you have to have faith in? You need to get specific there. Brings us to the main point or main idea for Genesis 21 to 24. You can see it printed in your bulletin. A life of faith means believing in God's work to get to us, not our work to get to God. A life of faith means believing in God's work to get to us, not our work to get to God. For Abraham, this meant a life of faith primarily in what God will do, his promises. For us, it means a life of faith primarily in what God has done in Christ. So that concept of grace, you've heard that word. We say that word a lot of God reaching down to us despite our sin against him. Grace is how our new life with God, it's how it begins. But we must remember too that grace is how our new relationship with God continues. We don't leave grace at the door. The whole of our Christian lives is not relying on ourselves, it's relying on on God and his promises. So through Genesis 21 to 24, we're going to see several examples of how the response of faith, which displays itself in obedience, how the response of faith is based on God's promises and God's provision. And we're going to note five examples from Abraham's life 
as we trace this story over these chapters. So if you haven't turned there in your Bible yet, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, I believe it's on page 16 or 17. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, um, I will stand corrected if that is not the case. Um, All right, thank you. Genesis chapter 21. In this chapter, we're going to see three different examples of this response of faith. And the first comes in verses 1 to 7. We'll see the faith in receiving. Faith in receiving. You follow along as I read. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. What we see in these verses is faith in receiving. This is what they've been waiting for, for decades now. The birth of Isaac here solves the dilemma that began all the way back, all the way back in chapter 11, verse 30. It says Sarai, who's Sarah? Sarai was barren. She had no child. What's to solve this problem? Well, the birth of Isaac. But there's been an excruciating delay that's brought them through different countries. It's brought them through famines. It's brought them through reaffirming promises. And now it's finally here. And the text sort of announces it pretty matter-of-factly. Very short. What we've been waiting for all this time comes in a couple verses. This is like a preview for a movie that you've just seen over and over and over again. And then once it finally releases, it's just, well, I don't really want to see it. This does not happen here. This is not a letdown. Abraham and Sarah's response reveal their settled contentment in God's provision. So if there are moms here who, right after your children are born, usually you don't say, well, it's about time. Usually there's a a joy that you see your child. Well, this is related to Abraham and Sarah. They show their faith in God, even how they received God's gift. So Abraham believed God had provided this gift, and therefore he obeys God's command to circumcise Isaac, thus setting Isaac apart for God. Sarah believed God had given her this gift. She asked, who would have said that I would have born a child in this age? Her laughter previously of unbelief now turns into laughter of joy. There's faith even in how they receive God's gift. 
Now, history would prove that this miraculous birth was just a preview of the one that was truly needed. The gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who became a man and was born of a virgin, is the promised gift that has arrived. The Son is the fulfillment of what Abraham and Isaac failed to do to save their people from their sins. Friend, are you like Abraham and Sarah? Do you receive God's gift with faith and with joy? Do you reflect on what God has given you? And does that lead you to joyful obedience to him? So I would encourage you to take time to regularly reflect on what God has given you. And not just physical blessings, friends. Reflect on what God has given you in the gospel. He's given you his son. This leads us to joyful obedience. Well, if you have not received this gift of Christ, know that it is here for you today. Today. And God calls us to receive this gift by turning from our way of living now. It's called repenting and trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, that he would be Lord of our lives and Savior from the punishment of our sins. That'll be clearer as we go on. But while we have Christ now, we don't yet see our home in heaven with him. So this means here we get glimpses of elation and and exuberance and, and joy But right now, here, all that's still mixed in with things that are really hard. With with trials and tragedies and sadness and depression and pain. So Abraham and Sarah's joy of receiving their long-awaited gift, that should give us hope of what it will be like when we finally see the Lord face to face when our faith will become sight. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. So as good as, it's to ref- as it is to reflect on what God has given us, it's also good to reflect on what God will give us. Thinking about heaven can fuel us to be joyfully obedient while we are sojourners here on earth. The Bible says those who hope like this renew themselves. So faith in receiving. But secondly, we see faith in God's plan. We continue to go in Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21. We see the example of faith in God's plan. This is not God's plan, according to Drake. Um, If you don't know that reference, you are not missing out on anything. So do you remember Hagar and Ishmael? Hagar first, first appeared in Genesis 16. Now, she was a part of Abraham and Sarah's plan to fulfill God's promise on their own. God's taken forever, so maybe we should step up and do something on ourselves. The plan was for Abraham to have a child by Hagar, and then that child, who's Ishmael, would be the child of promise. This was the opposite of what they were supposed to do. This was the sin of lack of trust in God. 
And if you read the Bible, all, all the stories in the Bible, it's consistent in showing that our sin has consequences. And often it's natural consequences. And it's no different here. So with Hagar and Ishmael present alongside Sarah and now Isaac, Abraham's household was a divided one. So in order to fully embrace God's plan, Abraham has to give up his own plan. Abraham has to give up his own efforts. As hard as it is, Abraham must let go of Hagar and Ishmael. And even as he does this, God, God still directs the path of Hagar and Ishmael. So in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, the Apostle Paul relates this story to what we rely on for our salvation. So it, it kind of gets after the, our main point today. Trusting in God's work for us, not our own works to get to God. So if you're here today and your goal in life is just to be an all-around good person, this is for you. While it's great that you want to help others, it's great that you want to volunteer, to, to be forgiving, to be, to be loving, to be nice, and so on. God's plan for us to, de to be declared good in his sight is not through our own efforts. It's through someone else's efforts. It's through the provision of Christ. So if it's the case that Abraham, or even ourselves, if it's the case that, that he could devise some kind of scheme to get God's blessing, then the result would be, this is Abraham's accomplishment. Abraham could take full right of what he has done. Abraham could boast in his accomplishment. But the Bible is clear that salvation, our, our good standing before God, it's all of God's grace. That there is no boasting of what we've done. That we only received the finished work of Christ by faith. And then we are freed from having to claw and scheme our way to try to be the best version of ourselves. Because that's not the Bible's testimony. The Bible doesn't say you need a better you. The Bible says you need a new you. You need to be born again. That's what Jesus says in John 3. Our sin, our selfishness, our rebellion against God, it makes us guilty before the Lord. It makes us unable to please Him on our own. And you know, because we're prideful, it's hard for us to admit this, to acknowledge this. But that inability, that, that guilt before the Lord, acknowledging that is necessary to receive His grace, to receive God's provision. So we must have faith in God's plan, not our own. Third, we see faith in a strange land. Faith in a strange land. So Abraham has the child he's been waiting for. But there's also something else he's waiting for. He's waiting for land. 
That's what chapter 21 addresses next. But you know, Abraham didn't receive his first part of the land promised to him. He didn't receive it in exactly a conventional way. There was no realtor. There was no Craigslist. There was no House Hunters Ancient Canaan edition. (laughs) The scene that closes chapter 21 involves Abraham and a man named Abimelech who Abraham dealt with in chapter 20. He's the king of a place called Gerar. So Abraham and Abimelech, they make two agreements. So in the first, Abimelech comes to Abraham for an oath of non-aggression. So basically, uh, I can relate this. Uh, I play basketball sometimes here at the gym, and I don't have the most endurance, so if the person I'm guarding, if I'm tired, I'll say, hey, if you don't run up the court, I'll stay and not run up the court too. <laughs> it's an oath of non-aggression. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, the fact that Abimelech, this king, comes to Abraham, who's this shepherd, he's a foreigner, and he comes to him asking for an oath of non-aggression, well, that shows how much God had blessed Abraham at this point. So this is their first agreement. And in the second agreement, Abraham goes to Abimelech and gets him to acknowledge that he has rights over a well in a city called Beersheba. And that's in the very southern part of that promised land of Canaan. And so having access to water when there's no running water, remember, that's a big deal. So all these agreements, uh, the significance of it comes in kind of the last two verses of chapter 21. Look at verses 33 and 34 of chapter 21. Actually, start at verse 32. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham doesn't have a home yet. The home that he's promised. Abraham is a pilgrim. It says he sojourned in the land of the Philistines. But even though it's a strange land, even though it's not fully his home, he calls on the name of the Lord. The God whose promises will last beyond the lifetime of Abraham. The Bible tells us that Christians are sojourners and pilgrims here on earth that we are waiting for our final home, that here, this is, this is not our home. We are first citizens of the kingdom of God. So friends, we have to be careful that we aren't too attached to what is here, that we aren't too attached for, to what is here because it could cause us not to long for heaven. So the more we we love the the comforts of what's here, 
the less we will eagerly anticipate for the, the joy of heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that we aren't called to be good citizens of our country. We're called to live as good citizens now. This doesn't mean that we aren't called to honor and pray for those who have authority over us. We are called to do this. This doesn't mean we aren't called to thank God who protect, for people who protect us from physical harm. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy the good gifts of our culture. This doesn't mean we shouldn't thank God for relig- uh, freedoms like religious liberty. All these are important things. Friends, they aren't ultimate things. We are sojourners in a strange land. And we respond to God in faith when we remember that we have a home beyond this one. So let's encourage one another to grow to be more attached to heaven than we are here faith in a strange land. Next, we see faith in the fire. Faith in the fire. What is the purpose of tests? The best tests are those that examine whether or not a person meets a certain standard. So there's famous tests like the ACT, the SAT, the LSAT, the MCAT, the BAR, physical tests. We can go on and on and on and on. Tests seek to prove something about the person under examination. Most often, it seeks to prove whether or not the person can handle what lies beyond the test. Testing, if done in a right way, they can accomplish more than proving something about a person. They can actually make a person stronger. You think about it. If you know a test is coming up for you, if you're good, you will prepare for it. And as a result, after the test, you will be stronger, maybe smarter, as a result of going through it. Or you could be like me, and you could study really hard, and as soon as you place the test down and turn it in, empty. (laughs) (laughs) But most of the time, we can look back on the hardest trials of our life, the hardest tests of our life, and see how God has made us stronger through them. In Genesis chapter 22, God tests Abraham's faith in him and his promises. He puts Abraham through the fire. And it's such a great chapter that it would be a shame for us not to read the whole thing. Actually, we're going to read verses 1 to 19. So you can follow along as I read. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, that's in the region of Jerusalem, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said on this, to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So we could do a whole sermon series on this chapter alone. But our time in Genesis is more of a driving tour than it is a detail-by-detail investigation. So we're touching on the major landmarks, not the minor details, so we can get a big picture of what's going on. So there are three things I want you to notice from Genesis 22. The first is the nature of this test. The stakes are high. You catch how many times that word son comes up throughout this chapter? Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, now that Ishmael's gone, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That word son shows up 10 different times. This is a monumental test seemed to go against everything that God had told Abraham. The hard part of Abraham's life was supposed to be over. The wait was supposed to be done. 
if we could try to imagine what it was like to be in Abraham's shoes, we could picture telling God, we will literally do anything but this. God asked me to do anything but this. This is the nature of this test. Second, notice the basis of Abraham's faith. So as tough as this was, Abraham proceeded, and he did so, at least it's not recorded, he did so without hesitation or complaint. So after God's command of take your son and go to this land, in verse 2, we see that Abraham, verse 3, he rose and he took his son. Did he know exactly what was going to happen? Could he explain completely what God was trying to do? No. Friends, there are moments in our lives when we can't answer those questions either. And how do we proceed? Well, we must have the right basis of faith. The only way Abraham could get through this test was because he knew God would pass this test. I and the boy will come back to you. He told his servants in verse 5. I and the boy will come back to you. We read earlier Hebrews chapter 11. Clarifies that Abraham had faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham wasn't resting on his own understanding. He wasn't resting on his own ability. He was resting on God's promises, on God's proven faithfulness. And that faith showed up in radical obedience. So this is the basis of Abraham's faith. Finally, notice how God provides. Tension is at its height. Verses 9 to 10. Every little detail. Abraham builds the altar. He binds his son Isaac. He lays him on the wood. He reaches out his hand. He takes the knife. And then the Lord stops him. And Abraham sees something. He sees a ram, which he reckons as the Lord's provision. And you look at the end of verse 13. It tells us the significance of this ram, the significance of it. Abraham offered it as a burnt sacrifice instead of his son. Instead of his son. God provided a substitute. God provided a substitute. Friends, the gospel connections here, they just leap off the page. The father sent the son, and the son did not regard equality with God a thing to hold on to selfishly, but stepped off his throne, taking the form of a man, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And like Isaac, he carried the wood that would lead to his own death. But unlike Isaac, there would be no substitute for Jesus. Rather, Jesus is the substitute for us. The Lamb of God, slain in our place. So Abraham's resurrection faith didn't foresee what would happen to his own son, but to God's son. 
Though Jesus died in our place, he would not stay dead. God raised him up, for it was not possible for death to hold him. Friends, we need a substitute. And the good news is that God has provided the substitute, the perfect substitute. I mean, this is all over the New Testament. One of the great verses of it is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, who was perfect, who was sinless, who was blameless. He made him to be sin on our behalf so that in him we would be the righteousness of God, so that we would receive his obedience, that he would take the penalty that we deserve. So this scene ends with God giving Abraham an even surer foundation of his promise. He swears by himself. Us, too, according to Hebrews 6, have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A foundation for this promise. And that's Jesus. His work, his priestly work on our behalf. That's the foundation that won't ever be moved. So we may read this passage, we may read this passage and and at first blush be tempted to say, oh, we're called to emulate Abraham's faith, just to put God first in everything. True. the, The problem is, we don't do this. And we won't do this. And what's more, the Bible says we can't do this. That means we need a substitute. And friends, rest on this anchor that Jesus obeyed in your place and died for you. And nothing can ever shake that foundation. Nothing can change that for those who believe in him. Their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. So faith in the fire begins with the unchangeable and unshakable foundation of Christ the Lamb of God slain for us. That's the basis. Abraham didn't go full Bruce Springsteen after God tested him. He could have only thought about the glory days of his faith and grown slack in his final years. But that's not what happens. In our last example of faith, we see faith for what lies ahead. Faith for what lies ahead. Chapters 23 and 24, God continues to work in Abraham so that he will display faith in God and his promises. After Sarah dies, his wife, verse 4 reminds us again that Abraham is a sojourner in this land. He's a stranger. He's a pilgrim. He doesn't have any land. He owns no land. And at this point, he's entitled to purchase no land. But when his wife dies, and he has no place to bury her, that could be an opportunity for discouragement. But God, why haven't you given me this yet? Instead, it's an opportunity for him to display his trust and what God will bring in the days ahead. So here, Abraham secures land so that he can bury his wife. And he proclaims that God will fulfill his promises. 
even if Abraham doesn't see it yet. The Bible says Christians go through death in a unique way. It says we grieve. We grieve like Abraham did over Sarah, but we grieve as those who have hope. We grieve as those who have faith in what lies ahead. Like Abraham, we look to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. How are you looking to that? How are you looking toward what lies ahead? Abraham displays faith in God for what lies ahead also in chapter 24. Chapter 24 is the longest single episode in Genesis, 67 verses. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it maybe this afternoon when you get home. It's a romantic tale full of how God providentially works through the lives of his people. And it explains examples of faith beyond Abraham. The example of Abraham's servant who's humble and loyal. The example of Rebekah who's compassionate and acts in faith by going with Abraham's servant to marry his son Isaac. But with Abraham, the story begins. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. By this time, it says he's old. He's advanced in years. God still calls him to faith. Abraham's faith in God's lasting promises brought him to reflect on how he could make an impact on those who will be here after he's gone. I wonder if we have that perspective of investing in people so that our impact lasts beyond our years. Having faith that God can use our efforts and our time in ways that we can't. To invest in people, to give ourselves to them, to love them, to serve them, to pour our lives into them so that the impact can last even after we're gone. Each one of us can testify how God has used the faithfulness of people who are now home with the Lord. How God is still using them now. So that should inspire us to be faithful to serve other people. And it should inspire us to listen to those who are wiser than us. Because we have faith for what lies ahead. So it's been quite the journey with Abraham. We've witnessed his faith in God's provision for him at several different turns in his life. It's been a long time. You're probably hungry. I'm hungry. <laughs> but I want to close by refreshing our memory a little bit. Okay? Close with three different applications to take with you from these chapters. Number one, don't rely on your own works for a good standing before God. Even if you're a Christian, you can do this. We've discussed words like basis and foundation and anchor. We are not reliable to be any of these things. We won't meet God's demand of full faith in him. We won't meet God's demand of complete love for him. It's not just that we won't, but we can't. There's no boasting for our achievements. So let go of this pursuit. 
Because if you think about it, it's ultimately a selfish one. It's one that ends up glorifying ourselves, not the Lord. So turn from living in a way that is reliant on what you do. Number two, live and rest in the finished work of the gospel. Abraham's faith was a response to God's gift of promise. His basis of faith was not his work, but God and God's provision. And what Abraham looked forward to, in a way, we get to look back to. God's provision is secure. Christ has come. Christ has obeyed. He has died. He has risen. He lives forever. This doesn't change. And we rest in Christ's substitutionary work for us. We don't rest in it just when we first receive it. We rest in it every day for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity. So rehearse this gospel daily. Rehearse the gospel daily. Soak in God's word and see how it all centers on God accomplishing our salvation through Christ. Live and rest in the finished work of the gospel. Number three, now what? Obey on the basis of grace. Obey on the basis of grace. But if you are a Christian, then you are doubly God's. Not only did God make you, but God bought you with a price. The price of his own blood. The Bible says, therefore, glorify God in your body. So knowing this finished work on our behalf, we live as new creatures Obedience is the fruit of our faith. And God's gracious provision in Christ demands our full obedience. One pastor explains how a woman began, who began attending his church first understood this concept of grace, like kind of the weight of grace, of God doing it all. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be no limit to what God could ask of me. Then there would, there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And this is good news. It is God's complete work of grace that has set us free, that makes us eager to live for him, to trust in him, to delight in him, to live a life of faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us, revealed in your word. God, would you change us through it? Would you reveal to us what we are trusting in, what we are leaning on? Would we follow you on the basis that you have accomplished our salvation? Would you free us from clawing and inching our way to try to glorify ourselves 
Instead, would we rest on what you have done for us? And would we follow the example of Abraham who trusted that you will provide and now we proclaim that you have provided fully and finally in your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.